Yeah, and just to let you know a little bit more about our church. But for this morning, I'm going to be talking about second chances. And we all need them, right? All right, so let me tell you about a couple times I've needed a second chance in my life. Uh, I am 18 years old. Uh, I go to Charleston Southern University, and I meet uh, the prettiest girl that I had ever seen. And lucky for me, she's with me today, Becca. So... That worked at Saluda too. That's great. So I meet Becca, and this is like a couple weeks before classes actually start. Uh, I get her number. I never actually use it. I just message her on Facebook. Guys, that's not what you do. And we're two weeks into the semester, and I want to ask her out on a date. But this is what I do instead. I find her in the library, and I bring her out. And mind you, Charleston Southern, it's a small Christian school, which means gossip happens. So people are instantly wondering, oh, what's happening there? And I get Becca outside, and as you could possibly imagine, I say, I really like you. And she couldn't reciprocate those feelings. Her response is, I don't know you. <laughs> so needless to say, that first date never happened because I, I blew my first chance. But as God would have it, I got a second chance, which was honestly just as abrasive as the first one. I'll tell you that story later. <laughs> Uh, there's another time in my life where I needed a second chance at something. Uh, this was shortly after I had been baptized. I had gone public with my faith. I was working for a guy. His name was Mike. Mike, was a, he's a really good man. Uh, he gave me a number of responsibilities that I was not qualified for, gave me tons of support that I needed. And uh, we had a weekly check-in conversation. Hey, how are you doing with these things I've given you? And one of those weeks, I had failed to do what he asked me to do. We're having our conversation, and he looks at me, and he says, Jeremy, have you done what I asked you to do? And you know what I said? I said, yes. You know what the answer was? The answer was no. I blew that chance. Mike was a really good man. He could have fired me. He could have said, hey, Jeremy, that means all responsibilities are off. Your job is done. You have not done your job. But instead, he forgave me. He trusted me. He actually ended up giving me more responsibility down the line. I needed a second chance, and he gave me a second chance. We all blow a first chance, right? If you're human in the room, if you've ever done anything, I've got one head nodding, you have blown a first chance, and you need a second chance. We've all done something like that. Maybe you goofed up praying with your family over a mealtime, and you're like, gosh, like I, I would really like to get that back. Maybe you stumbled your way through sharing your faith with a neighbor or a coworker, and you're like, goodness, God, I, just, I would really like to have a second chance at that conversation. Maybe uh, on your way here this morning, you had an argument with somebody else in the car, and they're, not, they're nudging you in the side. Maybe you really hurt somebody from small group, you said something you shouldn't have said. Maybe you looked at something last night you weren't supposed to look at. We all blow a second chance, but here's the good news. We serve a God who loves to give second chances. Right now, we're in this series, Real Lives, Real Faith. We're studying examples of faith from Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up or turn them on, and you can get to Hebrews 11 now. We're going to look at the life of someone who needed lots of second chances. Uh, this morning, we're looking at the story specifically of Sarah and Abraham. This is a couple that, 
they are very real. They would fit in very well here at Radius Church. They blew lots of chances. They had a very hard time walking with the God of second chances. And they're remembered in Hebrews 11, not because they're perfect, but because they served a God that was faithful despite their own failures. So our big idea for this morning, this is the one thing I want you to take away from this. Sarah had second chance faith, and you can too. Sarah had second chance faith, and you can too. She had the faith to take a second chance. She had the faith to believe that God would give her another opportunity. She had the faith to trust God despite her own failures. And we can all do the very same thing. So let's do this. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, it'll also be on the screen. I'm going to read the passage together. We're going to read Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2, then 11 and 12. So I want you to read with me. Uh, Church, this this is a participative sport. It's not just spectator sports. I want you to do this with me. The scripture will be on the screen. It'll be weird for a half second, and then it'll be normal. All right. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Let's go. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this, our ancestors were approved. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. So there we have it. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, 11 and 12. The story, at least as it's recorded in Hebrews, about the lives of Sarah and Abraham. But for these verses to make any sense for us whatsoever, we need to place them in their context. So I want to talk a little bit about how Sarah and Abraham entered the story of the Bible. Now, what you need to know is that Sarah and Abraham lived in a special relationship with God called a covenant. A covenant is simply this, a sacred kinship bond between two parties ratified by swearing an oath. It's a sacred kinship bond, which means this is more than acquaintances, more than friends. It's actually much more like a, a two spouses, a, a husband and a wife being brought together. And it's between two parties. So a covenant can be struck between two individuals, one person and a group, or two groups. And it's ratified by swearing an oath. So every time a covenant would be struck, there was some ceremony where the oath was taken And in the case of the Bible, every time a covenant happened, there was always an animal sacrifice. They would mark it with blood. That's a story for another time. But that's the type of relationship that Sarah and Abraham lived in with God. Now, covenants weren't just unique to Sarah and Abraham, though. Covenants were a common practice in the ancient Near East. That is the time frame they lived in. But Covenants would be struck strictly for political purposes. So here's an example. You have a a kingdom or an empire come into a new area, and they're taken over. And they make an offer for the people that live there. They say, you have two choices. One, we're going to wipe you out, totally decimated, and we're going to take your land. Two, 
You can enter a covenant with us and we'll protect you from others. We'll give you a little bit of provision and we won't wipe you out. Which one you want? The smaller kingdoms, if they were smart, they would take the covenant. So then the smaller kingdom wouldn't be decimated. They would have some protection from a larger kingdom. That larger kingdom gets even larger still. And that's what the purpose of a covenant was. But that's not what God does with these covenants. For God, these covenants are about relationship. They're about connection. They're about something so much deeper and more beautiful. These covenants aren't just commitments. You know, I make a commitment to work out on Saturdays. Becca can attest, I haven't worked out on a Saturday in two months. My commitments can be pretty low, and they can be pretty waning. These aren't either just contracts. You know, I've got a contract on a house called a mortgage. Uh, the bank is not committed to my best interest. The moment I stop paying that mortgage, there's some consequences there. Even though there's a contract, that, con- that contract can be nullified. Covenants do not work that way. Covenants are unto death. So God, the God of the universe, approaches Abraham and says, I want to make a covenant with you. And when God does that, he is promising a few things. He's promising he's going to protect Abraham and his family. He's promising to provide for Abraham and his family. And he's promising to give his presence to Abraham and his family. That protection, provision, presence, this was all loaded into this covenant language. So when the God of the universe approaches this one man and God says, hey, I want to make a covenant with you. What does Abraham say? He says yes. So in Genesis 12, God approaches Abraham, strikes this covenant with him. Genesis 15 God expands this covenant promise to Abraham and says, it's not just between me, you, and your wife, but it's between me, you, your wife, and your entire household. Genesis 17, God once again approaches Abraham, says, it's not just between me, you, your wife, and your household, but it's between us and anyone that comes under you for the rest of time. And here's the sign that I'm going to keep my promise If I, God, don't keep my promise, I will slay myself. That's the type of relationship that Abraham and Sarah lived with God in. One of unyielding, promise-keeping faithfulness, not dependent on their own abilities. That's the context we find ourselves in this morning. But obviously, as you, we were reading from Hebrews chapter 11, there were a few obstacles to God's covenant promises being fulfilled, right? Back in verse 11, it said a couple things. Sarah herself, unable to have children, passed the age, and Abraham was as good as dead. I want to talk about that first phrase, unable to have children. And take a step back here. Uh, <laughs> There are uh, some folks in this room that personally know the pain of infertility. I'm not going to stand here and try to fix that from a stage. I can't. What I can say is that God loves you and he sees you. He knows. We could talk offline about that. 
I know that infertility strikes us. I know some of the stories in this room about that. But I just also want to communicate that the God of the universe is faithful and he's kind. He wants to be near with you in the midst of that. And that's exactly where Sarah was. She, unable to have children, infertile all of her life. She went dozens of years. In fact, if you go back to the Genesis story, you would read she was 99 years old before she ever had a child. An entire lifetime of childlessness. And not only that, by the time she comes around to being able to have kids, she's totally past the life stage. It says she was past the age. It's one thing for people to see a young family cradling a newborn. It'd be a totally different thing to see a 99-year-old lady cradling a newborn. (laughs) She was totally past the stage where this would make sense. Past the stage of being able to stay up through the night with a crying baby. That's where she was. And Abraham... Look at him. He was as good as dead. Obviously, the guy that wrote Hebrews understood you can't describe a lady that way. He described the man that way. (laughs) Abraham, as good as dead. Some incredible obstacles to God's promises being fulfilled, right? Incredible so. But here's the deal. They didn't just have obstacles to God's promises. They blew some chances. They needed some second chances. Sarah and Abraham, they're recorded in the Bible as not being perfect. I said it earlier, they would fit in very well here. At least they would fit in at my dinner table really well. They both blew some opportunities. Let me tell you about a couple of them. Abraham and Sarah, after they're approached by the God of the universe and God establishes this covenant with them, They leave the promised land that God had brought them to because there's a famine, and they instead go to Egypt because there's food down in Egypt. They're getting into Egypt. Abraham looks at his wife, Sarah, and says, hey, when we get there, they're going to see how beautiful you are. They're going to know you're my wife. They're going to kill me and take you. So we might as well just call you my sister so that they don't kill me and they still take you. Does that sound like a plan? And she goes along with it. So what ends up to happening to Sarah? Sarah, she's seen by people that represent Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and exactly what Abraham said happened. Men go back to Pharaoh and say, there's this woman, you have got to have her in your cohort of wives. So they take Sarah, and Sarah is married to Pharaoh. And God has to rescue Sarah out of that situation because Abraham had failed to protect or provide for her. He gave away his opportunity to give his presence to her. So God rescues them from that. And then later on in their time, again, after God had already reestablished his covenant with Abraham and Sarah, they're traveling again and they get to a new area again. And you know what Abraham does? Once again, he says, hey, when we get there, they're going to see that you're beautiful and that I'm your husband. So instead of them killing me and taking you, let's just let them take you instead. And it happens. Twice this guy does that. Twice he totally blows his chance to say, I am her husband. You will get to her through my dead body. That's what we're supposed to do, right, men? I've got no amens on that one. That's not a good sign. (laughs) He totally blew his chance. Absolutely blew it. We would look at this guy 
and we would have a whole lot of adjectives and nouns for him. We would call him a whole lot of names because he's totally blowing it. But Sarah blows it too. Sarah, getting impatient, hurt, confused about God not keeping his promises and establishing that, takes matters into her own hands. And she comes up with a human solution to this God problem. And she says, hey, Abraham, I see that we don't, have, we don't have any kids yet. I've got this Egyptian servant named Hagar. How about you take her, you marry her, have a son, and that'll be the promised one that God has for us. Abraham follows her up on the idea, marries Hagar. <laughs> Again, sermon for another day. They have a kid. So not only has Sarah totally blown her chance to believe in God's promises and to believe in his kindness and his faithfulness, but then she gets angry with Hagar because Hagar was able to have the child Sarah is yearning for. I think deep down, Sarah was hoping that Hagar would be infertile as well. But that's not the case. And God used that, that child to reveal something in Sarah's heart. So Sarah gets angry. She banishes this young pregnant mom into the wilderness. She totally eradicates any protection, provision, or presence from Hagar and this child that she's carrying. God has to rescue her out of that situation and bring Hagar back into the family. That's bad enough. Sarah does it two times. <laughs> Just like Abraham failed twice to, to protect and take care of someone, Sarah fails twice to do it as well. She needs multiple second chances. So my question, as I'm reading this, I'm wondering how in the world could, the, could God keep his promises with this couple? How? How could God stay faithful to them? How could he be patient with them? How could he stick with them and continue to say, Sarah and Abraham, a little messed up, but that's my kind of messed up. It's because of God's character. God, if this is the first time you've heard this, I, I need you to hear me. His character is to be faithful and keep his promises. We have all been let down. We have all been hurt. We have all suffered from someone's faithlessness and inability to keep a promise. That's not God. His character is to be faithful. Verse uh, 11 says, Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring. Even though she was past the age, since, what? Since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. It was her belief in God's character that gave them the child. It wasn't in her ability to keep her own commitments. It was not in her ability to apologize hard enough or pray hard enough. It was in her confidence that God was going to do what he said he was going to do because he is who he says he is. So what, what did Sarah know of God's character? At that point, Sarah doesn't have all of this. 
She doesn't have thousands of years of recorded history between God and man and God being faithful and kind to his people. What Sarah knew is that God, in the beginning, created all things, which means he has life in himself. He must be good. He must be wise to be able to orchestrate and to rule all these things. Sarah knew that the God of the universe called her and her husband to walk with him in a unique covenant relationship. That's what Sarah knew. But the story of the Bible expands in terms of what we can know about God. In Exodus 34, this will be on the screen. This is what Moses and the people of Israel knew of God's character. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with Moses there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. So the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, listen, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Do you see God's character? You see how he is described. He calls himself compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. He calls himself a forgiving God, but he also calls himself a fair God. That is God for how Moses knew him. There is also God for how we know him. And that's not to say that God has ever changed. That is not true. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we know him chiefly in the man, Jesus Christ. Listen to these words from John chapter 1. John 1, 4, in Jesus is life, and that life is the light of men. You see this world not because of the sun and its shining rays, but because of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, giving life in himself to you. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father. Listen, full of grace and truth, overflowing with all that is good and true. That is Jesus Christ. That is his character. John 1, 16, indeed, that's a word. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. Jesus isn't dishing out grace with tablespoons. Oh, no. He is overlapping and overwhelmed with goodness. This is not bathtub goodness that is drained. This is Atlantic Ocean goodness that is constantly ebbing and flowing against the, the, the seashore of our hearts. That is Jesus Christ. John 1, 29, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How is that goodness expressed? It is expressed mostly in the fact that Jesus wants to give his perfect life in your place as a sacrifice for your sin. That is God's character. That is who Jesus is. So what would a good God like that do? He'd keep his promise. He keep his promise. <laughs> Sarah believes in God. She receives power to conceive. 
Then come offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. You go out to Saluda sometime this week while your student's on camp. You turn the car off. You get away from any light whatsoever. You just look up at the sky. Your eyes would be able to perceive one, 2,000 stars. That is one, one postage stamp of sky in an entire universe of stars. And God says that his faithfulness outmatches that. You want to get an idea of God's provision and his, his promise keeping? You go look at the stars and be bewildered by the fact that you can't count them. And then you remember that's one tiny sliver of South Carolina in a universe full of stars. You want another one? Go to the beach this summer. You go to the beach. What do you see? You see, obviously, the, the sky. You hear some seagulls. You see the water. You see all the sand. Um, if I were to hold a single grain of sand right here in my fingers, you wouldn't be able to see it. Uh, however, this is cute. I've got a gallon of sand right here. Um, any idea how much, how many grains of sand are in this one gallon? 1.1 million grains of sand. How many gallons of sand do you think it takes to fill up Myrtle Beach? <laughs> how many gallons do you think it would take to take care of all the seashores in all of the world for all time? One point or 8 to 11 trillion grains of sand is what it would take to take care of Myrtle Beach. 8 to 11 trillion. I don't even know how many zeros that is. That is one tiny sliver of beach in an entire world of seashores. God's covenant-keeping, promise-keeping faithfulness is unlimited in his fulfillment of second chances. God was not selfish with his provision of that second chance. He didn't say, okay, you feel bad enough for it, therefore I'll give you a child. If, if this was how God kept his promise to Sarah and Abraham, 1.1 million, you would take a chance on him, right? 8 to 11 trillion, would you take a chance on him? Numbers beyond end. Do you want to take a chance on Jesus today? That is how God takes care of us. You see, here's the thing. God struck a covenant with Abraham and Sarah that day. And he said, I want to take care of you. I want to provide for you despite your failures, despite your faithlessness. I'm going to be faithful to you. When Jesus came, he was bringing a new covenant. He ratified an oath through a ceremony that incorporated a blood sacrifice. It was himself. And in that sacrifice, he said, my presence 
always with you. My spiritual protection over you, everlasting. My provision for everything you need for life and godliness, unyielding. That is who I am. Faith in God gives you the chance for asking for a second chance. So where do you need to ask for a second chance? There's not a single person in this room that's perfect. And I think some of y'all in the room this morning are looking for a little bit of hope. You're looking for a second chance. Or else, why would you come to church? You're looking for the opportunity to kind of press the reset button. And that's what God has for you. God wants to give you a second chance. So what is it? What, what arena of your life have you blown it in? What, what sort of mistakes have you made and you feel like I can never come back from that? What, what relationship have you so utterly decimated and you think, wow, God, your grace can forgive me, but your grace can't fix it. You want to bet? You want to bet? God has grace for us to take a second chance on him. We got to take it. And that's exactly what we get in the gospel. And here's the thing. You, me, we are all created to love and trust and walk with God. But sin has come into the world and totally disrupted that. Just like a virus on your computer alters the software and the hardware, so now it doesn't even, doesn't even work. Sin has come in and altered our software, our hardware, and we don't work the way we're supposed to. But Jesus wants to come in. He wants to heal you. And he wants to slowly start fixing things around you. He wants to give you second chances. Now, that's not to say there aren't consequences for what you've done. But you could be forgiven in front of a holy God, and peace can happen around you. Healing can happen in your life. If Sarah isn't a convincing story for you to believe that, then I don't know what you need. Maybe you need something like this from Lamentations. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. That's what you need this morning. Called your spouse something last night? God's mercies are new today. You looked at something over the week, God's mercies are new today. You goofed up praying with somebody or sharing your faith with a coworker, God's mercies are new for you. God can't help but keep his promises to you. He can't help but be faithful to you. Take him up on it. Take a second chance on him. 
I do know there are some in the room that have never taken a first chance on Jesus and you've never actually trusted in him before. And I want to invite you to take a few moments now to just process that. You've come, you've listened to someone sharing about the goodness of God and now the ball's in your court. Are you going to act on that or not? I would love nothing more than to talk with you about that after service. Kim, Matt, Chris, our small group leaders, we would love to talk with you about what faith in Jesus Christ looks like and how you enter that. I just want to encourage you. As I'm praying and as the band's starting to come up, I just, I want to encourage you. Think about that. What would you taking a second chance on Jesus look like today? Pray with me.